Hey everyone, Josh Sheridan back this week uh, with the Barely Legal Podcast. Super excited this week about our guest. This is our first honest to goodness musician, uh, Sean Kyle. He, uh, for those of you who know him, is uh, Tampa royalty. Uh, he's a musician, a p- producer. Uh, he's a knows everything about the vintage uh, guitar market, and uh, just an all-around interesting person. So uh, excited about today's show, Sean. How's it going? It's going all right, man. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I understand that you have a, a studio here. Is it in Tampa Heights or Seminole Heights? I I have access to a few different recording studios in the Bay Area. Okay. But I have a, a mixing room in Seminole Heights. All right. Is that where you're spending a lot of your time these days? Uh, it depends. I, I, I've gone through a few different iterations of having recording studios. I had a big facility on Willow and Cass. Okay. Where uh, Willow Avenue Studios was, where TBAE broadcasted out of, and I had the broadcast room there. And um, cut the Have Gun Will Travel record there, the JT Brown album was cut partially there. And, uh, but when I went back on tour again, I kind of gave that up and it started bouncing around to different recording studios. So at this point, um, some of the records I've cut because most of my stuff can be crated up and I can fly with it. Sure. Uh, it's become more economical to actually do what the Rolling Stones did for Exile on Main Street, hole up in say an Airbnb in the middle of the woods or the Blue Ridge Mountains, create a record there than me sublet a studio in LA or Nashville. I always, you know, one of my favorite records of all time, and don't judge me if you're not a fan, but is uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Mm-hmm. And I remember they, uh, I forget whose house it was. It was like Sharon Tate's house or right. somebody's house. And they just, you know, you hear all sorts of stories about the recording of that album, but I've seen video of it. And it, it definitely adds something to the recording that you can't seem to get from just a regular studio. Yeah, immersive recording, I think, it can go both ways. There's been situations where I've been, you know, I was stuck in DC at one point and I hadn't seen the light of day in a very long time. And, uh, and it was a dead of winter and all of a sudden everyone starts getting depressed. Yeah. You know, and you don't know why. And it's like, Oh, it's because you haven't seen the sunshine in like a month. <laughs> it's like you're recording like, in a casino. Or yeah, something. exactly. It's like, you're cutting this record and it, you know, it was, it's a great sound of recording. Um, but then there's been other experiences that have been really beautiful. Like one, one group, um, that I worked with for the agency group uh, requested I produce an EP for them. And basically, I, I, they're like, well, where do you want to record? We have access to the studio, that studio, uh, in like Baltimore or somewhere like that. And I'm like, hey, do you know anybody um, through the family or whatever? A couple of the guys had families that were really involved in, in that area. Do you know anybody that has like a big house that's empty? You know, or maybe they're renovating it or maybe they're selling it. And one of the guys, he's like, well, uh, I sent you some photos. It's kind of like a Georgian mansion, but oh, there's wow. nothing in it. Oh, wow. I'm like, does the heating work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I re- made a list of requests of st- equipment that I needed for their end. And then I created my stuff and I flew up there. And in two weeks we had a, we had like a, I think an eight song, like basically three different EPs for them. That sounds done. amazing. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was an amazing time. So let me, let me kind of go back and kind of take people through your, your musical history. I mean, the, the thing that I know you most for is the Beauvilles, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat new to the Sean Kyle game. So if you can kind of walk me through kind of where you started out, the bands you've been in, where you've lived, that sort of thing. Uh, I was born here in Tampa in an area of town called Suitcase City, um, which was a, and still can be a dicey place, but back then, 
um, when I was a kid in the 80s. It definitely had a lot of issues because of the crack epidemic that was affecting the South at the time. And uh, it's called Suitcase City because of the transients sure, and the crime yeah. and things like that. And um, for good or bad, like I, when, as like a preteen, I was working with my dad a lot on like construction sites and things like that. So I was around Ybor City in those areas a lot, you know, be, getting dragged around as a kid for free, basically like free or cheap labor. Right. And uh, so I got to get immersed in kind of the culture, the local culture of Ybor, which back then was still kind of old world. Yeah. And also had the remnants of the art scene from the 80s that were still kind of hanging around before Ybor got gentrified. Yeah. So all that stuff turned me on a lot as far as creatives industry goes. And initially I, I, I didn't start I didn't even get a guitar till I was 15. I didn't start playing till I was 16. That's that's and relatively then, late for a musician, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I was a painter and then got a job at a glassblowing Painter, studio. like paint houses or painter, like artistic? Uh, artistic. Okay. Painter. And um, got through the kind of local arts culture, wound up getting a job in a blown glass studio doing furnace work. Wow. Wound up working with contemporaries at Dale Chihuly. And I was just, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I should be doing. I just took it all just for granted how it was. Right. Um, I then worked for JSG Boggs, who's kind of a, he's a listed artist. He was like a money forger. He was on uh, 60 Minutes. And um, there's a book about him. He, he passed away recently, actually. Uh, but he was a very Andy Warhol character. And oh, wow. know, traveling the world, he, he became a quite famous artist for a short amount of time. Uh, and the whole pop culture art revolution thing. But... What changed my life was at 17, literally the week I graduated high school, I answered an ad in a magazine that was looking for an electric guitar player. Okay. And I only been playing guitar for like two years. Right. And I lied about my age. I said I was 22, went and did the audition, got the spot. Oh, wow. And like three months later, I was playing colleges. Oh, wow. And I, I had no idea what I was doing. It was, it was, it was kind of this band that sounded like the Cowboy Junkies, and they okay. had a terrible name. It was like Republican Hippies or something like that <laughs> at the time. And uh, very much Cowboy Junkies, like they had a, like a fiddle player, and one of the guys in the band had toured in this band from Atlanta that opened for Jane's Addiction. So I was like, oh, I'm going to learn something from these guys. And, right. And I did. I mean, I really, I was super green. It took them like a year and a half to find out that I was uh, not 21. Well, and um, which uh, was a tragedy to me because I lost my tab in Ybor City. Yeah, because they told on me. Really? So it ended that badly? Actually, I ended worse. Like they had a lawyer. Um, God, what was his last name? His name was Lawrence. He's a very big man, and uh, made national news. Lawrence was the band's lawyer because he lived next door to the drummer in Clearwater. Okay. Lawrence was like this kind of, kind of a little bit of like a con man lawyer. He. You know, he had he, the guy with NSYNC in the yeah, backstreet. Yeah, well, he had been like he <laughs> yeah. had been like a linebacker when he was young. He was like in his sixties. He had a quadruple bypass. He's a very big man. Yeah, seemed very nice, very sweaty. Well, he made me sign a work for hire contract going to law. Sure, yeah. When I he didn't, nobody knew I was seventeen. Right. So, so I signed sign it. it. Yeah, yeah. I can you know it was invalid. So I signed this work for hire contract with them when I'm seventeen. I didn't know what it was. Right. And it came back to haunt them because um, yeah. I wound up writing all their songs. Like not all of them, but I wrote the melodies for most of their songs. I didn't you write reach a contract that you didn't have exactly. the standing well, I, to enter into. I didn't know how any of that stuff worked. Right. So I realized the band was taking all this money from the gigs. Like we were playing shows in certain sides of town. The band was actually getting paid, and I never saw a cent of it. Right. You know? And I'm, meanwhile, I'm like, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old or whatever, and I'm driving and rehearsing all the time, and I'm totally broke. You know, I'm doing all this weird stuff. Like I was doing like fill-in work at a university in town, and they were writing me grant checks, and I wasn't even going there. You know, I'm like uh, <laughs> working in a glass blowing studio, trying to do all this stuff, trying to go to college or whatever for art, and um, had like potential to get scholarships because of the glass blowing stuff to Pilchuck or Haystack. 
but music just took over. And all of a sudden I, I looked into it and I read like the business of music or whatever. And I realized, wait a second, I'm writing all, all the, content, the melodies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm writing all the basic melodies for the song. So, and I'm not getting any credit. And, uh, I remember talking to them about that. And then big Lawrence came in, you know, this big sweaty Michigan guy. And he's like, he's like, well, Sean, you know, everybody wants to get along and, you know, he did sign an agreement. I'm like, newsflash Lawrence, I was 17. The agreement's invalid. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, wait, what? And, um, and then, then after that, it ended poorly because I was like, well, you know, you got to, if you own all the music, then you have to pay me. Right. Like, and, uh, you know, they, it went back and forth and they, they had pretty much just put a bunch of money. They were older. They were like in their late twenties, early thirties. They put a bunch of money in the band from the jump, which is a mistake a lot of people make. Right. And, uh, so they were kind of like, I didn't put any money into the band, so they need to get paid back before I get paid, which is crazy. It doesn't work that way. And, uh, in the end, you know, I kind of moved on and, years later ran into a couple of them and they had seen me traveling the country and, you know, touring and doing all this stuff. And, um, you know, they, we actually, a couple of us had a really good conversation, which was kind of healing and cathartic. And, um, then I found out what happened to Lawrence. I'm, I'm putting money on heart attack or prison. Lawrence was in the news. You may remember this. Uh, there was a lawyer that started a lawn company in Clearwater. Okay. And the fellow he started the lawn company with played demolition derby with his old late model Mercedes. Okay. Ran him off the road and blew his head off oh and then god. shot his own head off. Oh my god. The lawyer in the Mercedes was Lawrence. Oh my god. And it made like national news. Oh, I wow. I and I had heard of it. Like yeah. it was in all the newspapers. This yeah. would have been like 2001, 2002. Okay. I mean it was like early 2000s. I was in law school then. Yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, that's anyway. That was my first experience wow. in the music. Well, that, that's that a, was my that's first a lifetime and a few years right there. Yeah, my first music business experience slammed into you, a couple years. Yeah, you got a, a nice primer. You kind of checked off all the boxes right mm-hmm. off the bat. So then where where'd you go as far as music? Um, I uh, had started playing literally anywhere I possibly could because I realized I was a songwriter. And at that point, I was still thinking about, you know, I was still working in a glass studio and I was still painting paintings and hanging them places and selling them. So I was very, very lucky that things just automatically just seemed like they were working out. Um, and, but the music thing did not automatically work out. It was terribly hard. I still didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I realized I needed to get more educated on how to play and what to play and how to write. So I started like literally six, seven days a week, um, attending open mics, meeting other musicians, and which is how I got to know a lot of that kind of crop players from, um, late 90s, early 2000s, who were older than me. Was this uh, all locally still? Or? Yeah, this is okay. still, still in the Bay Area. Um, so, so that's how I met like Damon Fowler, who we're the same age, uh, Rebecca Pulley, um, Mike Tozier, who was around for a long time, uh, the guys from Have Gun Will Travel and their first band. Uh, I met them, um, and on and on and on. And then the, is that then how you met Gio and all those people, or was that later? That was a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but, but that kind of crop that I ran into at that point uh, like November Foxtrot Whiskey, Aaron Lepley, and all those people in, in that crowd that was a little bit older than me, like some of them were getting signed and getting interest sure. and going to South by Southwest. When, would this, all be, this, when stuff. was this? Like early um, 2000s? That'd be like 2002, maybe. Okay. 2003, somewhere around there. And, and that's when I put together, you know, a proper lineup of the Beauvilles. It's sure. like they're, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002. And we started playing around. We were probably not very good. And um, we're a band that basically met at like open mics in different places and things like that. And, and we had no idea what we were doing. And, uh, 
uh, we were watching all these other people that kind of did, and we weren't sure if we were like a college band or if we were a jam group or like, I, I didn't, you know, it's hard to have perspective, especially in that area, era because um, music and immersion in different styles and genres was not as easy to come by as it is now. Yeah. Even then, like the digital Napster thing was just starting to get no, going. No, sure, I remember, yeah. And uh, LimeWire. <laughs> yeah, that was it. And, yeah. and and that was revelatory because all of a sudden you could listen to music from any era. Like one of the guys I was in the band with was super into vintage jazz. He went to Heart School of Music and he basically dropped out because he wanted to come down to South and play in a Southern rock and roll band. Right. Um, so you have this jazz trained guy who basically wants to be Ginger Baker and Leonard yeah. Skinner. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, that's the kind of people I was surrounded by, but they were great players. And it made up for me being really, really green because it allowed me to learn very quickly around players that were exceptionally good. Yeah. And uh, especially back then, I just, you know, I still had the mentality that I was a kid from the middle of the hood with nothing, with everything to freaking prove. And I was willing to fight for anything at any time. Right. On the drop of a hat. And, uh, but that sort of tenacity changed basically the trajectory of what was going to happen for me pretty faster than really I, you know, I think I expected, but I didn't really expect anything. At well, I mean, time. I would argue your path is even that much harder because, you know, most, most of these stories have something to do with going to LA or going to New York or wherever and trying to make it there. I mean, I, I got to figure trying to make it in Tampa is even 10 times harder. Well, if you don't, if you don't have any perspective, you don't really know. Right. You know, to, to me like LA or, or New York might as well have been the moon. Yeah. You know, or at Nashville, that point, yeah. yeah, at that point in my life, I never, I think I had never been on an airplane until I was like 18. Yeah, same for me. You know, and, yeah. and um, I didn't have an instrument in the house. You know, we were too poor to have a piano. You have any siblings? No. You're an only child? Yeah. I love it. I'm an only child. I, the, the, I, I, maybe we'll get into this, but being an only child, I think it's such a huge part of who we are. I mean, I, I've, I've learned over time through a lot of therapy what impact being an only child has on you. So I'll ask you about that later. So anyway. But <laughs> mental note, ask off record about yeah, therapy. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but yeah, at that point, um, there were people that were shining stars in the local community because to me they were getting out and they right. were doing things that um, I just felt this strange compulsion or drive to do. It just seemed like the thing to do, like reading certain literature played a role in that reading Jack Kerouac and stuff that you kind of run into when you're that age. Um, starts to influence you and make you have these thoughts that uh, of travel and romance and adventure and all these other things. And I already had that, but then it started to become more formed. And then that influenced the way I wrote and it influenced sort of the vision that I had moving forward. And it changed dramatically at that point, I think, who I was as a writer. Well, I mean, obviously you had some kind of itch you were trying to scratch and just figuring out ways to get it out between painting and you know, all these different things. It seems like music is kind of what you landed on. Do you still do any of the other stuff today? Are you still painting or? Uh, I, I, I keep promising myself I'm going to start doing it again. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've worked in photography professionally um, because of the music industry. Uh, there's other avenues like that that I've still worked in. I think that the change for me happened when there was an immediacy to music because originally, like, I, I had terrible... I still do have like anxiety around groups of people, but if I'm on a stage, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Like if I have a purpose or I'm on a big stage, if I'm in like a giant crowd at like a festival or something, you know, I'm a guy that's good for like an hour and then I got to get out of there. Right. But you know, you put me on a stage, I'll play for four, five, six, seven hours straight if I have a reason to. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm completely unfazed, you know? Um, 
and and I think that has to do with the way that I grew up, which is, you know, in a neighborhood where maybe you had a couple friends, but it wasn't safe to go running down the street, you know, with everything that was going on in that neighborhood. I mean, it's like you literally had like crack dealers, prostitutes getting dropped off in front of my house. Like it was, it was, it, it was a weird time in Tampa in the '80s in that area. Did you have artists in the family? No, I, my my grandmother was like a a really great stride boogie piano player, but okay. she was self-taught. Sure. But, you know, I, I probably only heard her play once or twice in person in my entire life. What did your parents do? Uh, my f- parents were both kind of, my family's kind of comes from either like farming or railroad. Okay. So my dad's side of the family was, um, my his father, my grandfather, was one of the first people in Africa for World War II, and he got malaria immediately and got sent back for oh, dead. Wow. And, uh, he recovered and owned like a filling station and a dairy and things like that. And then he got caught up in the land scam that happened in Florida, I guess, in the 50s, 60s. Okay. 60s and moved the entire family here. Oh, wow. And they had a dairy out off Turkey Creek. I, I bet you they know my wife's family because they own a dairy out there too, yeah. A bunch of Kyles. But, um, yeah. And then uh, they also, then they after the dairy kind of failed, they got into like roofing oh. and contracting work, okay. basically. So like construction, humbling stuff. Yeah. And then my mom, uh, her side of the family, it's, it's, it gets a little strange. Like her father uh, mysteriously like changed his name and left New York with one of his brothers and just skipped New York City, popped into Florida, met my grandma, got married. And he was kind of like, he was a very, very mysterious guy. Um, I found out that his father owned a music store in Jacksonville. Okay. Strangely, but I never saw any musical influence in that side of the family at all. Right. And um, the other rest of that family comes from like railroading, and uh, they're they're in Valdosta and Hayhira and areas like that. I've actually been to the family home there where I met my great uncle who was 102 and he was still tending to the original homestead that his father. Like out of a John Steinbeck novel or something. Yeah, it's 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 weird stuff. Yeah. But, But I'm I'm the first one to grow up only in the city, as yeah. far as I know. Yeah. So going back to the Beauvilles, um, how long did that go for? Different iterations dragged on until like 2012 or something how like that. How many albums were there? Uh, we were on EPs and compilations, but there was a full length and an EP. And then there's, an, there's like two records that never got released. There's a full length on Spotify that I've listened to a, a, a few times. Is that like kind of your biggest release? That was the one that changed everything. Yeah. Basically. It's a very, you know, I have always am wary to uh, discuss with musicians what influences I hear in their music. Because I'm always afraid that they're going to, you know, take issue with it. But it, it's, how old were you when, when you guys recorded that record? Man, I'm really bad with dates and numbers. Um, well, how many years ago was it? That, Ten was, years ago? that was released in 2000. Eight, it's I about think. 10, 11 it's years about ago. ten years, ten or eleven years old. I think the music video came out in two thousand eight or nine, so I think the release came out maybe two thousand seven or eight, somewhere around there. I'd when have were to you born? look it up. Seventy nine. Okay, so I'm. So you're about forty. Yeah. All right. So you were late twenties then when that. That'd be. 28, 29, 30? Yeah, I think maybe 27, 20, 28 when the, 27 or 28 when the record was done. 27, maybe. I mean, it had to be earlier than that. I think I, I looked at some of the dates recently, so I think it's screwing me up. Because the first EP, I think, was 2004. And that was the one that got me in the Independent Grammy showcase. Oh, wow. Which was weird. It was like I got a phone call, and I had no idea if it was even submitted. And I thought it was a prank call. 
hitting a home run your first at bat. That's yeah, cool. and it was the first re- first record I first record I ever did. It's with, a with very a mature real record. Like uh, I'm trying to, I've been trying, you know, in anticipation of, of meeting with you, I've been listening to it and trying to figure out how I want to discuss it with you. But it's a very mature sound. Like it doesn't sound like someone who's within the first ten years of their career. I mean, there there was a lot there. I I felt. Um, I don't know if you know the Walkman. Like I yeah, kinda, yeah. I, I've had a I've kind of felt that vibe a lot listening to it. Yeah, I kind of made that record in a bubble. Okay. I, I guess some of the bigger influences on me were especially like classic rock. And um, there was a weird moment in my life where uh, some friends of mine and I were like wandering around back in the day, like late 90s. We were wandering around Nebraska Avenue on a Friday night to go get a pack of smokes. We were kids. And uh, I stumbled out on the road, almost got hit by a truck. Hmm. And uh, my buddy who like grabbed me, and I like fell on the ground. I looked up and he was wearing like this graphic shirt and it said the Afghan wigs on it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Great. And, and I had never heard of them. Yeah. And I remember seeing that shirt and like sometime that year I was in a UCD store and I saw that name and I picked up, I think a compilation record that was supposed to only be for radio. And it wound up in some, it was called like hysterectomy or something <laughs> terrible like that. And it, but it was all their weird singles up, basically what would be categorized as their singles up at that point. And I listened to the hell out of that and it completely, I'm like, yeah, that's it. It's funny because I like, wouldn't have connected freak, you with Greg Dooley, but yeah. you saying that it completely makes sense to me. Yeah, and, and it was and it was drastic, and it sounded a little southern. It had like punk, but it also was dark. Dark it had like sure. Motown influences in it, and these all this stuff that I had listened to, but I never connected the dots because I, you know, I was like infatuated with Led Zeppelin and classic rock, but also 90s stuff had been super pervasive on on what I was into. Right. So by the time I got to that record, Whispering Sin. It was like I was being super demanding and I wanted something that was a creative statement that was almost like poetry that would smash through different genres but also be listenable. Yeah. So there's songs on there that are complex, like jazz time signatures, but you would never know it right. unless you sat down to try to play it. Um, and we were all living in... I moved back into the house I grew up in because my mother had moved away. And, and, and the house was basically going to be condemned and we knew it. And uh, it was this big old frame house back in Suitcase City. And the entire band at one point lived there, just about. And we had the entire place like a recording studio, pretty much a warren. And, uh, you know, you'd look up there at a hole in the ceiling, and there's like animals looking down at you and that kind of thing. I mean, it was pretty dire. Anyway, we were all super broke. We didn't know what we were doing. And I had toured with, thank God, uh, gotten asked to tour with John Wesley, who later joined the Porcupine Tree, and they won a Grammy. And they were, he was based here, but they were based in England. He was putting together a band to showcase for Sony. And in between my first EP and that record, I was like kind of jaded. And I'm like, I'm turning 25. I'm going to quit music. <laughs> and so had enough he, of this shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He called me up and he's like, look, you know, I heard that you're a lead guitar player and you can sing harmonies. And he asked me a few times and thank God he did because I went and finally met with him and I saw that he was the real deal. I mean, right. I'm like this, not only is he the real deal, he's one of the greatest guitar players I've ever heard anywhere still today. He's one of the best people I've ever met in my life. He's been an ultimate journeyman. And the guy's like a Zen master. I mean, like, he's a black belt and all that, but yeah. he's literally a Zen master of humanity and straightened out a lot of, like, anger and stuff like that that I had at the time and focused it into, frankly, being a better musician and also taught me how to use Pro Tools. Right. And, and, I was, and then I was around him and Mark Prater, who was a session drummer, who was head engineer for More Sound, who had played with all these people on all these legendary metal albums, even right. though he isn't even really a metal guy. And I was around all of a sudden, like I'm the weakest link around all of these huge ringers 
these like a call touring musicians that so are doing that this rock your showcase. I mean, do you think that it changed my life? Yeah. I mean, if 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 I and I've told him this, and he's an incredibly humble man, even though he's just literally one of the best, one of the best guitar players I've ever seen. His solo albums have been released now on new new labels. He's still, I think, is involved with the Porcupine Tree in Europe, and um, but I've told him this. I'm like, literally, if you hadn't have been so if he hadn't called me back two more times to get me to come meet with him, my life would never have been what it's become. It's funny how you it's can impossible. demarcate these kind of turning points in your life in uh, retrospect yeah. and kind of the path you could have gone down versus the one you did. Absolutely. And, and I'm thankful for it because as time passes, you start to realize how big of a difference those people make and influence you in your life. Right. Otherwise, you know, you, who knows what would have happened. So uh, touring with the Bovilles, did you do... Uh, Within the states, outside the states, like how far how far did that go? Um, all the, that was interesting because we started to get popular here after that record was released, and I had gotten involved in the scene in Orlando and helped um, some younger guys going to UCF get started with sort of an agency and a promotions company. I had booked an independent tour with just the bass player in between the first EP and then coming back after getting kind of supercharged by these pros and understanding how to do recording engineering more properly and these sorts of things. And, um, and then going back to that house and wiring it up at his recording studio and literally spending a year trying to record a record, listening to it, scrapping it, and me completely recording, doing like, it? kind of Billy Corganing a lot of the stuff. Yeah, I just remember you know? was it, uh, Dave Grohl went back and re-recorded all the drums for... Yeah. Uh, color and the shape or whatever that was yeah yeah and, and and that wound up being the end result of the record i'll never be able to record a record like that again frankly it was too painful and it drove everyone in involved with it a little crazy and almost killed a couple of guys to okay. be honest but uh touring was tough because we viewed it as if we were a gang uh-huh. uh kind of an old school way of touring like none of us were hired guns we came out of the garage basically yeah. and you're like this weird core unit that it's us against the world and that's not necessarily reality. Sure. You know, it's, to quote John Wesley, it's like you're running a race that doesn't exist to a finish line that's not even there. But we couldn't think of it any other way. Wasn't that life? I mean, that sounds like, you know. It can be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we toured the hard way. I mean, we basically, what we call shit touring. You're, you're, you're in a terrible van. Um, it's we breaking Giamma down Kano. all the time. It's times. like the Minutemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I have a toolkit in there because I grew up doing mechanic work and because I had to. It's like happy birthday, 18, 18 years old. Here's a, here's a car that doesn't work. Get your toolkit and fix it. Right. So, luckily, I knew that stuff because of growing up that way, and I fixed the van on the side of the road. That's awesome. Literally up to the last band I was in touring the country, which was way more legit. Um, but yeah, that's what it was. It was these tiny places with no one there, and uh, then some of the college places we started to notice that there would be people there gradually. Right. But still, like we were doing East Coast tours. I think the first tour that I booked to New York, myself and back, by the time we get to New York, we think it's going to be a big deal. Some of the shows were been great. Some were terrible. By the time we get to New York, I think it'll be a big deal. And you know, we get to the Lit Lounge, which I think is still there in Lower East Side. Nobody knew who we were. No one even knew we were going to be there. No one gave a shit. Yeah. Because that's frankly, still in New York. Right? Yeah. If you come in like that without a press or without hype or without a bunch of heat, no one cares and no one knows. And frankly, no one's going to be there. If they are, you'll be lucky if they uncross their arms and turn around from the bar. Right. And uh, go back out to the van. I remember this distinctly. This probably was 2004, 2005. Go back out to the van. I remember <laughs> I, w there was a sign behind a telephone pole and I had a $75 ticket. And I was so damn angry. And, and then I checked my cell phone, and the, one of the, we only had two shows on the way back from New York, and one of the shows canceled. Oh. 
<laughs> and at that point, I was furious, and I packed everybody up in the van, and I drove straight back from New York to Tampa. Oh, my God. With only like a stop in Virginia yeah. or something to wander around. And then yeah. I got back in, drove the rest of the way to Tampa. I think it probably took me 20, 27, 28 hours to get back. Yeah. And, um, and I was humbled. You know, I'm like, okay, well, maybe things aren't the way I think they are. Um, but after a bit more time and that full-length record, all of a sudden things changed. I mean, it was um, people I had helped out, now they were agents. People that had seen me over the years now were writing for magazines. Um, people that knew me as kind of like somebody that had no idea what he was doing creatively and was just throwing everything at the wall, all of a sudden saw that there was a cohesive vision of sound and that, you know, that record at the time got a bunch of good press regionally. And uh, next thing we knew, we were in South by Southwest. Wow. Uh, there was a nonprofit here that was taking bands out there. We went the year before, and then the record landed, and we were there. And um, next thing I know, John Langford from the Mekons, uh, le you know, legendary Americana guy, like was at a showcase. He was headlining. He's like, hey, do you want to back me up? Oh, wow. That's awesome. um, we were playing on the street. We got photographed by Noah Kalina, who was famous for doing a photo of himself every day for like years and years yeah. and years. He was shooting for Rolling Stone. So we were on the front page of Rolling Stone wow. the next day. That's so cool. Then we got interviewed by the New York Times, Eric Lindell, who was one of the editors in the street and uh, for playing in the street on 6th Street, which at the time nobody was doing back then. It was like, but we looked in the tip jar and like, you know, basically we had a guitar case open and, and like some industry guys had wandered by and threw like a couple hundred dollar bills oh, in there. Wow. So we're like, yay, gas money, you yeah. know? And, um, but after that, like I had been through the ringer enough to understand kind of how press worked. Right. Um, I understood that really I just needed to buy another cell phone and set up a new email and say I was my, you know, a different yeah. person and the manager. Right. You know, and then all of a sudden we started to get treated differently. And then yeah. shortly after we'd, afterward, um, I handed the reins over to uh, a young guy that I had kind of helped get going who, uh, became a lifelong friend who became my agent. And, uh, now he's Jesse Ross of United, United talent agency. Who's a huge agent out in LA. Who that's very I just cool. officiated his wedding like a year ago. Oh really? Yeah. Well, that's funny. Um, but, but yeah, so it's like all those seeds have been planted and because I kept at it and I kept consistent, I kind of remained uncompromising creatively. Uh, I did frankly, unfortunately piss some people off because they didn't get the context of what I was doing perhaps, but the end result, became the right one, which was there were a lot of people that respected me because I wasn't chasing money. I wasn't chasing a trend. A lot of the sounds that I, I had been doing at the time came back around to me. Yeah. The next thing I knew, I was playing with Americana bands, some of which people forgot, like Slobberbone, and who were legends of their time, and like Centromatic, but then also the Drive-By Truckers yeah. and Jason Isbell. Yeah. And um, then the Psych Rock, because we were on that line. The next thing I knew, I was playing with like the Black Angels, We've, you know, we've talked um, to yeah, we talked you know, a lot about hanging out and getting involved with the Growlers, uh, toured with Broncho when they first got started. There's a bunch of other people I'm sure I'm forgetting. The Night Beats, which became like, for a hot minute, like the most important psychedelic rock band in the world. That one record's still stellar. Um, and there's been other weird moments, like, you know, we're standing on stage with Girl Talk or The National or people wow. like that yeah. at festivals. Um, and again, we still didn't have a manager. Yeah. You know, we, we had a, an agent that was pretty much a kid that had graduated from college. And, uh, but as the people we kind of were involved with moved up the ranks, the, the strange thing was there became a loyalty, a friendship there where they took us or me with them. Right. So then I started to go to different agencies. Um, I was part of the development of the whole Athens, Georgia theater, 
uh, development with right. like Roadkill Ghost Choir and T. Hardy Morris and Dead Confederate and all those people that came out of that scene. I was tagged in, I was dragged into that in, in a good way. Um, Thomas Wynn and the Believers out of Orlando, uh, Half Gun Will Travel when they first got started. Um, and a lot of those routing for tours that I booked myself, many of which were, you know, initially were garbage, kept getting better. And then the agents that I was working with wound up handing those routings over to Thomas Wynn, Half Gun, Dead Confederate, other bands like that. So it took ye several years for any of those things to ever show any kind of progress whatsoever for my career or anybody else's. Because you're planting seeds and harvesting them and, you know, seeing what will grow over time. And I mean, you know, I don't think that experience necessarily is singular to the music industry, but, you know, one of the things is I toil so much in my mind about how to succeed and how to grow and all this stuff. And by and large, uh, most of it is, is just don't stop, keep pushing, you know, and sounds like that was kind of your experience. You know, you just got to keep, keep moving forward no matter what that means, you know, and, and, you know, where that, where that led to you. It's like you're talking about now is kind of, kind of vetted out. I, I don't know if the current industry works that way. I don't think it does. Really? It, it does and it doesn't. Um, I think the necessity of the industry back then was to keep an identity and keep it true. Right. And eventually it builds. So it's so back then everyone would talk about the concepts of, you know, for businesses in general, I think, uh, I'm a firm believer in, and there's a lot of things written about this, that the music industry pretty much was the pioneer, the canary in the coal mine for all the other industries that we were the first one disrupted, but we were also the one that spent the most money. I mean, music industry up until the last decade was floated on failure 99% of the time. Yeah. And that failure wasn't unfunded. That failure was funded like the a, teeth. Yeah, like a throwaway development deal for an artist they would be sh they, they had no belief in was $150,000. Right. I mean, that's literally them just writing 150 grand to some kid out of high school and saying, "Hey, good luck with that. Have fun with that." Yeah. Let us know if you write a song. Obviously, things aren't the case now and a a younger band getting 30, 50 grand from indie is a lot of money. But back then, 30, 50 grand was a laughable amount of money that, that was kind of just throwaway cash, you know. And well, was that because of, you know, you could still make money off of selling records versus touring? Yeah, C CDs cost nothing to produce. And, and, you know, two or three people having a hit would float hundreds of people that failed completely, even right. if they were funded with hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Um, that, though, did allow the industry to float off of a lot of people thinking if they just kept doing the same thing, eventually it would turn around and get them. And that was a common point of view. Now, I think the beauty is, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of people that are furiously angry, people that are older than me quite often, um, and that the music industry isn't the way it used to be. And, and I think that's garbage because the, the reason why things are in a way better now is that we're allowed to reinvent ourselves very quickly. Like, and I've done this several times. I have an idea. I see some players I think are great. I have five or six songs that I think are really cool that fit a certain idea. You know, I do basically an art project of a band. I crank out a handful of demos. I've learned how to do all this work and production work myself. I can shoot the music video. I can build the website. I can do the branding. I can do all these things. It's a true art project in a realized form. And once that's done, I hand that over to somebody in the industry and I go, hey, what do you think about that? Yeah. I don't ask them to do anything. Right, you kind of fully formed it before you even handed it I over don't, to them. I don't even ask them for a favor. Yeah. I just ask them, hey, this is something that I'm working on. It's not finished. What do you think? Yeah. And if I'm right, they reply, and they're like, this is really, really cool. What is it? And that opens up a conversation. And then if nobody replies, you know what? I say, hey, that was fun. Maybe we self-release it, throw it out on Spotify, let it get devoured by nothing, and then 
you know, instead of that taking eight years for me to figure out that project really isn't hitting it, it took me three months. And then the next three months, I just do a different one. The That's next three awesome. months, I do a different one. The next yeah. three months, I do a different one. Until I come across something that I think is really, really, really cool. It's really, really good. And then I'll take that and I'll hand that over once again to somebody in the industry, PR person or an agent, somebody to label on and say, hey, man, you know, it's been a while you asked what I was up to. Hey, this is something I've been working on. What do you think? Yeah. I don't ask him to sign it. I don't ask him to do anything. I don't ask him to book it. I don't ask him for a favor. Most of that stuff I don't really need at this point. What I need is a really good opinion. And if the opinion is founded and right, it's not going to be patronizing because nobody has enough time for that nowadays. Huh. It's like, hey, this is actually really, really cool. Do you have anything else? Well, in fact, we do. Yeah. And um, we'd be interested in doing some of this stuff. Are you going to South by Southwest? We're thinking about it. Yeah. This opens up conversations. Right. Basically, you're... All the stuff that I learned in the music industry has basically equated to the same idea of starting startup entrepreneurial businesses one at a time quickly and throwing them at the wall like failing your way up. I don't think about it that way, but that's the way that people write about this sort of yeah. process. Yeah. And um, luckily, though, for me, like some of this has been different where it gets easier because I already have kind of through doing it the hard way, I developed some relationships. But... I don't think the new normal for that equates getting in a van and doing it for eight years and seeing if that shit works. Because if it takes you eight years, it, it, it's not going to work. Not working, yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally, if, you're, if it's really on, it's going to take a few months before something happens. And that's because of you know, where we're at now with technology and, and just kind of the way that the industry works. I mean, you can Yeah, just, it's completely different. Yeah. And the other thing I would say, too, and you, you could tell me if I'm right or wrong on it, is seems like what it, what it was 20 years ago was whatever you came into the industry as you had to stay that way for the entire time of your career whereas now you can kind of you know like you say be something different you know each project or kind of cross lines or blend things together yes and and no I, I think that a lot a lot of I think that a lot of artists um, make the mistake of trying to do everything at once and fulfilling every dream or idea within one context of project. Sure. And that makes people confused from the jump. Right. It, it's, it's almost better, like Anton Newcomb from Brian Jones, Tom Asker famously said, uh, you know, uh, music industry only works if you're a cartoon character. Uh -huh. You know, and, and, and everybody was like, wow, what a jerk. But in, in reality, you think about some of the biggest hit makers of like the last decade, and they do seem to be this one-dimensional thing, yeah. that surface layer. You know, uh, that's not to discredit them. You know, I think that doing that is kind of a high art because once you dig deeper, you realize that's not the case. But to to make it to where, like, the general public sees something, they immediately get it, they understand it. You know, that's not really my thing. But I do respect the fact that somebody's able to make their art into something that is almost like Warhol-esque, you know? You can become president by becoming a character. Oh, man, no, no talk of <laughs> politics today. So anyway, well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit too about, well, uh, you know, something near and dear to my heart, the uh, vintage guitar market, but then also, you know, what you're doing as far as production these days. So um, that's how I, I met you. Uh, you know, we were at Four Green Fields and I was uh, with my friend Gio De Silva, who I guess you had a knowledge of from years earlier. I think New World Brewery or something like yeah. that. You guys had run across each other. But then we started talking kind of guitar collectors and kind of your experience there. So can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, my great-grandfather was a two-amp repairman as a hobby. 
he was like a welder for CSX, but he was a two band preparerman as a hobby. And I remember being a little kid and going in his workshop and he had everyone in the neighborhood's tube amps and TVs that they still wanted to work. And there were parts strewn everywhere. He's a really funny guy. And, uh, later on when I started playing music for whatever reason, I, and I don't have, I had no recollection of why I just became fascinated with the older equipment from the fifties, stuff that looked like old suitcases, things that were tweed or whatever. And I didn't even know at the time that those things were really the most highly valued things. Right. I was just compelled by it. And then I also had this thing where I like, I'll read something and I just know, I, I memorize the spec sheet. I, it just, that's just how my head works. So all of a sudden I realized that, you know, I'd read through these vintage guitar magazines when I was like 16, 17 years old, just because it was something that somebody gave me for Christmas. I had no idea what the hell it was. But the right. next thing I knew, I knew what everything was. And then at like 17, I'd do funny stuff. Like I'd, I'd look at back in the newspaper before Craigslist and I'd like call up ads that had weird old stuff. And I'm like, hey, what else you got? Mm-hmm. And I wound up buying... This only means something guitar nerds, but basically, like, I wound up buying and selling guitar amps to the guy that <laughs> does Neil Young and Keith Richards amps. That's crazy. Um, and that particular amp, a Tweed Deluxe from 1958, my, made by Leo Fender, uh, 58, 59, 60. There's a point where I had like four of them, and I was just like driving around, picking them up in my beat up old van, and going and having them repaired, and you know, jamming out to that stuff. And uh, um, you know, I, I found a 57 Stratocaster in a pawn shop. Um, and this stuff, and eventually for a hot minute when I was like jaded on music and I got a straight job with uh, a music store, I was like their de facto vintage appraiser for the Southeast because anybody else that really knew what they're doing. And like, I discovered a bunch of cool stuff. Like I, I discovered a, a real 1960 Gibson Les Paul one owner in a case. And for those who don't know what that is, uh, it's basically the Stradivarius violin of electric yeah. guitars. Um, at that point, had that guitar been sold, it would have sold for close to $400,000. Mm. That's not an exaggeration. It had the receipt from Manny's Music. And no, I am not in touch with the people that own it at this point. They actually uh, <laughs> like deferred to their lawyer after a certain point because yeah. people started hassling when they found out that that guitar existed. Yeah. And the guitar was a rumor for about 10 years. And I'd occasionally get a phone call from some other big collector or dealer. But after that, um, I had a reputation for finding really rare stuff. Uh, an agent from Dave Grohl had me looking for a Pelham Blue Trini Lopez, which then became his signature model. Everybody's seen yeah, yeah. playing with the Foo Fighters. Um, I knew I'd heard of one being in the south of Florida. Uh, no one knew where it was. And then uh, just a few years ago, it popped up in Miami. But by then, Dave had already figured it out, I'm sure. But, um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, for some people, it's almost an illness. As far as collecting <laughs> guitars, just, uh, I'm also into classic cars and old motorcycles. And Did you ride your bike here today? Uh, no, no, oh. I didn't. I have to, I have to run somewhere else through parts of town. I don't want to ride a motorcycle ride a in, but, yeah. uh, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I love, I love old motorcycles, old BMWs and triumphs and things like that. It's even though they like to bleed oil everywhere and break down, but, but yeah, the guitar market's weird. Um, similar to the classic car market, it staggers based upon age. Um, I think very soon though, a lot of that stuff's not going to be worth very much. That's because what you were, that's the, what you were yeah, talking the, to me about. The baby yeah. boomers, the, the whole thing is like vintage motorcycles, right? They, they become really expensive because like right now guys my age and your age really want them. But there's a ton of dudes out there that are pushing 70 that, you know, they can't kickstart a bike. It's going to hurt their leg. And then all of a sudden, all those bikes are going to come to market. Well, it's the gonna, market, yeah. yeah. it's going to take the value. It's already starting to happen. You know, the price of a used Harley is literally nothing. Um, the price of certain classic cars, like, you know, old T-model Fords have tanked. Because my my granddad is past. Yeah. And my dad doesn't like that. He likes 55 Chevys and 65 Corvettes. 
And soon those guys like are all having problems. You know, they got to worry about their prostate and stuff. Things get expensive. They don't have time to work on the cars. And you're already starting to see those flood the market. And then, you know, I pretty soon, I mean, it's sad and it's also cool. It's like things were so expensive that people that wanted to drive around on that stuff or play those cool old guitars, you know, we couldn't afford them. Right. Um, most musicians like buying a vintage guitar is beyond their means. Yeah. And, you know, even in the 90s, there were a lot of things that were very cheap and then it got super inflated. So I think it's going to go back to being where, um, especially musical instruments, uh, for musicians that want that kind of sound or that kind of experience or that kind of inspiration, that's those sorts of things are going to become affordable again in the next like five to 10 years. Uh, although the bad thing about that is, you know, I do know guys that have their entire life savings tied up in that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine my parents, uh, they owned an antique store over in St. Pete when I was growing up called wood nickel. And I mean, I remember they, that place. They made a living. It was right next to ringside boxing. Yep. Um, they made a living. They were school teachers, but they supplemented their income. And I, I drive around today and like, how many antique stores do you see? You know, you know, there, you could, you could float a living off of it and you just don't see too many of them today, you know? So I imagine it's the same kind of thing. Um, production? Uh, so one, one of the things that I think is most interesting about the music industry for those of us that have DIY'd it to a certain level, um, every single guy or girl that I've met that went through the DIY kind of scene can't, if they've come out, we've all come out with a ton of skill sets that were nece necessary of that time. Sure. And so it wouldn't be uncommon and uh, more than one band I know would have somebody in the band that knew how to code websites. Somebody, and a lot of times bands would delegate, figure it out. Yeah. We don't have 10 grand to build a website of, you know, the early 2000s. You can't do it. Um, most, most websites in the early 2000s were absolute garbage, except for music industry. All music industry sites were spare no expense, 40, 50, $60,000 websites. So if you're in an independent band, you have to have that kind of website. Right. If you're in an independent band, you need press photos. Hiring a legit press photographer, even back then, was hundreds of dollars, yeah. which you didn't have. So somebody got a film camera, and they figured out how to shoot film, or somebody in the band went to, you know, was an artist or whatever, and you figured it out. Um, and you knew when you figured it out, because all of a sudden, the photo would wind up in magazines if it was good. They didn't right, listen right. to your stuff. They just print it. Uh, the same thing. You'd learn how to write bios. You'd learn how to write copy. You'd learn that if you didn't send that to a magazine... They wouldn't write about you because right. they're lazy and they have not lazy. They have a million things going on. They have a deadline, and the last thing they need to worry about is some band they never heard of. But if it's a compelling story, they can just butcher block that copy or hand it to an intern and knock it out and toss it into the publication. Um, uh, I, and I redact lazy. There's some journalists here that are some of the best in the country. Ray Roa, especially. Ray Roa. I was just talking to him yesterday. I'm trying to get him to come on the show. Yeah, he he should be down. He's really cool. He was actually an intern at the magazine I was marketing director for called Reacts Magazine. So that ties in because all of this stuff, because I consider pr production not just music. I consider it the full package because just Our having product, the music yeah. does not work. Right. You can have great music and if you don't have a great press photo and you don't have a good website and you don't have a good bio and you don't know how to communicate what you actually are doing to the rest of the world, even back then you would be kneecapped. Yeah. Now, forget about it. No, no one is going... Aside from the rarest of bands, where it's like this rare animal that's discovered in the woods that no one has seen before, and then like, you know, somebody that's an influencer or somebody that's in an agency or management or a lawyer discovers this weird, rare bird, and they bring it back and they put it on display, and everybody's like, oh my God, look at that thing, we've never seen it. Aside from that situation, representing an artist, which is super duper rare, 
everything is very, 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 very figured out before it, before it's handed around. Sure. And so for me, learning how to do that process successfully and launching several bands, not only my own, doing that on a national level, like one after the other, and then knocking into like, there was a period where there, there were 13 years straight where I played a featured or headlining showcase at South by Southwest in different groups. Right. The only way that you're able to do that is if you have everything figured out. Figured out it's yeah. not just the music. It's a relationship with press. It's it, you, you basically, and it's kind of, I don't normally talk about this stuff because my analogy I give is that no one would pay attention to Jim Morrison if he was really good at accounting. <laughs> yeah. Because like that kind of screws up the suspension the damage, of disbelief. Yeah, yeah. You know, every, so much about creative is based upon the suspension of disbelief. Like the most press I ever got is allegedly punching out one of my guitar players on stage at this big showcase. Right. Because he was blasted and he couldn't play. And that's not actually what happened, but that's what made it out. And we let that trot out forever. And the yeah. band got known for being this violent band that brawled on stage. Sure. And people Keith started show batted the guy oh, in yeah. the face with the guitar. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that may or may not happen. Uh, but in any case, like... Um, Understanding how that works is part of production. As far as music production goes, um, I have a particular point of view that's based upon understanding how, uh, having kind of a library of knowledge of how all these pieces of musical equipment sound. And so when I think about these pieces or these sounds going together, um, it's almost like uh, my buddy Chef Greg Baker of Refinery fame looking at a bunch of ingredients on a table and knowing how it's going to turn out when he puts this amount of this or this amount of that. Um, the production I do is usually different because I'm not just recording everything to sound okay and then later on we'll fix it in mixing. If I do my job right, it sounds brilliant and we don't have to mix it. Yeah, it, it's, out of it's, camera. It's like my wife's a photographer too. Correct. She's a, yeah, what are they, is it called? Out of camera. Out of camera, yeah. yeah. So same thing when I do photographic work yeah. and, and uh, I just did all the materials for Daniela Soledadja. That's the girl just, you were telling me about. Yeah, she's a great bossa nova artist. Her, uh, her grandfather helped start bossa nova really with Jabim. And uh, she signed a blue blue, uh, blue line records, and I and I did all our initial press materials and marketing materials, and um, and and music video, and uh, for a label uh, owner who Nate Najari is an old friend of mine who wanted that kind of look and kind of vintage look, and all of a sudden she's you know again this goes back to what I was saying she she had great music she had a bunch of great players on the music she had a really good story then she had great press materials a great website a great video and that's all she needed and she's touring internationally that's awesome but that's to me, that's production. Yeah. Pro production isn't just like I have people that send me records to mix and they want it to sound like the 60s or 70s. Yeah, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I have people that come in and want to do co-writing like um, Ed John, who plays all over the place, w was uh, just in yesterday and we were working on a single we co-wrote with Forrest Hoffer. And we're, work any and we're going to make it sound more like Post Malone instead of 70s rock. Right. But, but that has elements of shoegaze and all these other things in it. So for somebody to just say, hey, I want it to sound contemporary, what, what does that even mean? Yeah. You know, you listen to like um, the song Circles by Post Malone. And, and, you know, I wasn't a huge fan, but I went to see his concert. Somebody gave me tickets to go see his concert. And the guy's brilliant. And he's a phenomenal front person. Production is amazing. But listening to the song Circles, it's like half of the thing sounds like Echo and the Bunnymen guitars. And it has My Bloody Valentine synth washes. What's the one he did with Ozzy? Oh, I forget the song. Yeah. I'm not that deep of a fan. I've listened to it. Yeah. I, I, but, but I guess what I'm getting at is that um, kind of the new normal of music production, you have to have this giant Wikipedia-esque knowledge 
of all eras of sound yeah. to where you hear something. Like if you played something, I could tell you specifically what it is to the point where like, and this is an exaggeration on some recordings, I can tell you what guitar it is. Yeah. I may even be able to tell you what amp it is, what like kind of sommelier of musical sound. Yeah. But, but if you've been listening to, if like I've been lucky and over time, like back when, again, I was just like going into barns and buying old drum sets, and right. weird stuff like that. Like, you know, I'm like, cool, I found the same drum set John Bonham used. This is awesome. Right. You know, I have an acoustic guitar that the Beatles used. This is great. Um, you memorize what it sounds like, and then you take that color out of the paint box when you need it to right. paint a painting. Uh, and, and, and that, to me, is the foundation. The, that with writing and understanding composition and theory and those sorts of things are the fundamentals of really, really good music production. So much... Uh, what people record now is they just go into a studio that's very expensive and has really great gear. It's a giant building. It's very nice. But you're not using 90% of that stuff. Right, yeah. In reality, they're plugging one mic and putting it in front of one guitar. You could do that in your backyard. It, it, it doesn't matter. If it's not the right mic and it's not the right guitar amp and it's not the right person playing it, it's still going to sound like garbage even if you're in a giant multi-million dollar recording facility in L.A. It really doesn't make a difference. Right. So what are you working on right now? Um... I've, uh, in between touring and with a lot of the things I learned how to do because of having to out of necessity, I started a multimedia company after I left React's magazine called Bay Multimedia, which, um, and I don't really advertise it very heavily. It's more about uh, client referral, but you've seen the work. It's, you know, it's the independent brand yeah. that I've been doing from the jump. Um, the Refinery for, I think their first like three James Beard nominations, I was working for them. Uh, Pinkies, which is a big South Tampa thing, and a then lot a lot of, of and, yeah, yeah, different different uh, Tampa Bay Beer Week stuff. Um, I've done work for Copper Tail. I've done work for the Tampa Museum of Art. Did work for the Dali, uh, you know, kind of hipper stuff. And there's un unhip stuff because frankly, everybody needs the exact same thing that we all used to need back in the music industry in the early 2000s. Everybody needs a really cutting edge, beautiful website that works on mobile. Uh, everyone needs bios. Everyone needs photos. Everyone needs social media content. And they need to not look like goofballs while they're doing it. Right. And, and, and kind of remain true to the communication of how things work. So, so I started a company that does that. And then recently, I, um, with a good friend of mine, uh, started a company called Be Original Media that is uh, services nonprofit industry. So we just did work for um, Instruments for Life last night. Oh, that's cool. Uh, we're doing kind of publicity videos for them. you got to let me know more um, about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Absolutely. And uh, I also, a few years back, with a friend of mine that was an agent for Madison House, who's now with UTA in LA, we um, started an app called uh, the Music Festival app, which was like a, a curator and consolidator of kind of the, the all the right stuff that you would want to know about music festivals. So right. if you're at a festival, you know, your cell phone goes dead, you're going to have all that stuff online. So I did all the UI UX for that. And, and we got some other investors involved, and that was like cooking along for a few years. It just debuted on the uh, iTunes store, and now it's running on the iTunes store. And in the future, we hope to integrate um, things that involve ticketing and things like that. So it's a lot of the tech stuff that we had to do back in the day for our little indie rock bands and vans are now kind of used by everybody. And um, the recording work comes in you know, every month. I, I'm lucky to get to work with a bunch of really cool people. Uh, I've, worked with, I've been working with Ken Apperson, um, uh, George Pennington and I have been going back and forth on his stuff. I want to have uh, him on. Yeah, his dad and he's I went an interesting to law guy. together. Yeah, um, very that, mature sound for as young as he is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like very progressive stuff. It really. I, I it's keep, a lot I of keep, musical taste. I could guess someone that age would be into. I keep trying to get him to be like total like '60s sounding rock kind yeah. of stuff, but we, we're debating. Uh, Ed, uh, 
JT Brown, I did some of his stuff a little while ago. Gosh, there's different stuff that comes in all the time. It's hard, it's hard to say. Sometimes there's cool stuff that's soundtrack stuff. Sometimes it's stuff that's like garage bands that maybe, you know, they're demoing things, you know, or co-writing I feel like stuff. the scene is really kind of picking up. I, I, I had this, we, had, we went to lunch the other day with a, it was actually a marketing rep for a pain management for a PI thing that we're working on, but we actually started talking about the music and it was like, yeah, the music scene in Tampa is kind of dead. And I was like, I don't think no, so. No, it's not. It's super active. It's, yeah. I mean, there's literally music everywhere right now. It's it, like everybody is eschewing DJs to have live music. Um, a, a cool album that I'm doing that's a full length is by the band Navin Avenue, which is the songwriter Shay Krispinski, but she's got a bunch of guys that are veterans from all these like Tampa and regional and national punk rock bands right. and they're doing this kind of early early alternative meets Americana. Some of the stuff almost sounds like PJ Harvey. Oh, sure. Um, and it's a full-length record, and it's uh, she's also a, a published writer, and she has this book deal that's kind of pending, and the entire album is actually a narrative to go with this book. So oh, it's wow. like this whole other thing. The lyrics are phenomenal, and we're just... We're about we're about to wrap that up here shortly. It's very cool, very cool. Well, thank you for coming in. I, I you know, I keep saying this, but I, I think I could probably do five more of these with you. You have such a, a breadth of experience and knowledge on a bunch of diverse areas. So we'd love to have you back in. Thanks, man. Yeah, All we right. didn't even get into the music business. I, I well, I, and law, I want to law be, stuff. I want to you crazy know, I, stuff like that. So but. Nicole, who produces this show for me, I always have her kind of give me cliffs notes on you know. What is production? What is an agent? And she goes through and explains it to me. And I feel like I know less after she explains it to me than before. And that's no comment on her explanation, but it's just, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty diverse and crazy. And it seems like it's more of a vector than hitting a set mark. It's changing. Yeah, it's, it's, it has evolved in the last few years, but I think the cards are finally settling yeah. know, as far as the industry goes. It's like, like I said, I got started when Napster was just starting to disrupt. And then my career started go, taking off when Napster was destroying everything and then right. there's this weird gray area so you know a lot, a lot of us have survived through this trajectory and now i think music industry is settled into this ongoing content delivery or experience delivery thing with festivals and spotify and all these other things but the industry's also changed i, I if you want to i'll come back and we'll talk just business music industry. i would love stuff. i would love that you're a neighbor so uh, all good you know yeah, i know man. you're busy but I'd we'll love have another beer all right thank you sir thank you